Since 1971, Beautio Books has specialized in ornithology and natural history. They're a small, family-owned and operated mail-order bookstore with the largest selection of new, used, and rare birding and ornithology books in the world and a knowledgeable staff ready to help. Find field guides, travel guides, ornithology, natural history, humor, even children's books to inspire the next generation's love of nature. Visit beautyobooks.com to find everything you're looking for and ABA members receive 10% off. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm Nate Swick. Did you watch the Super Bowl? Did you see it? I'm not talking about the game. Uh, I lost interest once the possibility of an all-bird matchup became impossible. Thank you very much, Baltimore, for not even making the playoffs. What an embarrassment to Corvids around the world. I'm talking about the birding commercial from Doritos, favorite snack chip of house sparrows and European starlings alike. I'm not here to give Doritos any extra publicity here, but, you know, for delays, call me. I have experience with the product. But anyway, the commercial in it, a a bird watcher, a black woman bird watcher, no less, score one for representation, chasing what appears to be a pitta, maybe Indian, maybe blue-winged, hard to tell. The birder is hanging off a large tree branch about 20 feet in the air, so maybe the advertising agency does not understand birding as well as we might have hoped but no matter we're moving on the bag of spicy doritos falls out of the backpack onto the ground in a menagerie of animals including sloths deer bear and a beatboxing fox sing salt and peppers push it with a vermilion flycatcher voiced by megan the stallion doing the ooh baby baby part from the mouth of a crocodile it's a it's quite a thing it seems like an odd use for Megan the Stallion to put her voice in a bird. I mean, I love Vermilion Flycatchers, but I think she's probably more famous than a Vermilion Flycatcher. But moving on, uh, in an interview with Billboard, Megan called her character a hummingbird, which is why she is the stallion and not the naturalist. That's not really fair. Um, I'll bet she was told it was a hummingbird by the same ad agency that put the bird watcher 20 feet up in a tree. And you know, why would she question that? I don't blame her. The commercial had animals from five continents altogether. Uh, correct identification of a flycatcher is a low priority. All that aside, pretty weird. Maybe exciting. Bird Twitter seemed to like it. That birding is in a high-profile Super Bowl ad is, is a bit of a coup. Uh, I've said here before that we'll know when birding has made it, when it is considered just a normal thing, maybe even in the background of a Super Bowl ad. This wasn't even the only birding adjacent ad this year. There was a, a TIAA commercial where a guy is photographing an ivory-billed woodpecker and his battery ran out. He is actually lifted into the tree on some sort of harness device that gets him up. So it's fair to say that ad agencies don't really understand birding all that much, but at least they're putting birding in their commercials, and that's that's something. I feel like there was a time when even that would be a huge deal, but now it's normal. Look at us. It is, with a nod toward the voice of the finest depiction of Vermilion Flycatcher ever in a Super Bowl ad, good news. On the show this week, a recent study showing how birds react to a changing climate in North America using data collected from nearly a century of Christmas bird counts. It is meaningful science that every CBC participant contributes to. Authors Sarah Saunders and Jeff LeBaron are here to talk about it. All that after this week's Rare Birds. 
This is your Rare Bird Focus for the middle of February 2022. The Hearman's Goal Saga continues. Into the new year, the individual that has already represented first state records for Rhode Island, Massachusetts, New Jersey, South Carolina, and Georgia has finally at long last been discovered in North Carolina in New Hanover County, to be precise, hanging out with a large flock of gulls that also contained, at least briefly, a black-headed gull, making for a pretty interesting gull combination that had previously only been recorded in California. Also, notably, the goal was seen not more than five miles from North Carolina's second record of Mountain Bluebird, which means that this podcaster is looking for some time to make a run to New Hanover County. Uh, That's all I have this week, so I'll leave it there. If you want a more complete roundup, please check out the Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash rba or get those rarities as soon as they happen. You can join our ABA Rare Bird Alert group, and that's on Facebook. There's no question that climate change is having an impact on bird populations, but dig a little deeper and you'll find a tangled web of changing weather patterns, land use, habitat loss, and the different needs of individual species and groups of species that make coming up with management practices a real challenge. But birds, more than most other taxa, have the benefit of decades of data from both professional and community scientists, perhaps best exemplified by the Christmas Bird Count, a project known and loved by many in the bird world. And those many decades of data were applied to the issue of a changing climate by my guest today. Dr. Sarah Saunders is an ecologist with the National Audubon Society and the lead author of a paper published last month in the journal Global Change Biology. And Jeff LeBaron has been, since 1987, the director of the Christmas Bird Count, an effort that scarcely needs any introduction to our listeners. Welcome to you both. Thank you for your time. Thanks for having us. Yes, thanks very much for having us, Nate. Of course. Um, I'll start with you, Sarah. What did this CBC data tell us that shed new light on the question of how birds react to a changing climate? The cool thing about this study with the CBC data is that we could go back 90 years in time, and that is a really unique contribution, and it's not something that's done very often. So by going back that far historically, we're able to tease apart those influences of climate change versus land use change mm-hmm. on 89 different species. And, you know, a lot of people look at climate change and land use change, but more frequently they look at it independently. So right. we were able to look at those processes simultaneously and be able to kind of weigh those relative impacts. Is climate change or is land use change impacting uh, certain bird groups more than others? And um, the, the key take home that is a new revelation is the influence of land use change and specifically on water birds and grassland birds. And these are species that are rely on these habitats and these habitats are not very abundant in the eastern United States. And mm-hmm. the changes we've been seeing with wetland loss and grassland loss has really been having an outsized impact on these bird groups compared to climate change. And so we're really trying to Um, highlight those findings and shed light on the fact that, you know, the land use and land management practices um, are going to have a big impact on trying to increase resilience of these birds to climate change because those processes go hand in hand. Yeah, yeah, for sure. What makes this Christmas bird count data so appealing and important for for this sort of work. I'm sure, you know, uh, it, Christmas bird count data is, is is robust. I mean, it's a lot of birds and a lot of birders and a lot of places. I mean, there's a lot you can glean from it if you really want to dig into that data, I imagine. 
Yeah, I mean, and you you just described it. Basically, it's the spatial breadth and it's the temporal breadth. Really, those yeah. two things are make the the community science program really unique in that sense. And you know, we could cover the entire eastern United States and the Midwest, and that's a pretty big spatial extent to look at how birds are responding to these processes. And going back nearly a century, um, and having those two things together is necessary to answer these really big scale questions. But it's not something that you know, frequently happens. There's only so many programs that have been in operation for over 100 years. So, yeah. Jeff, you've been you've been digging into this this CBC data and compiling this data for a, a long time. How how have CBCs changed over the over the years that you've been involved with them? Probably the biggest change is that we actually have a, a database. Um, yeah. When I started, the the, the program was a 100 percent paper. Um, I, I, we, we, gen- we, we printed a, a 16 page paper booklet that I, I that. physically I mailed to every yeah. single compiler everywhere. And it was the same booklet that they all got and they wrote, handwritten, wrote their, their results on it, mailed it back to me. I had to hand edit all of them. And then it went off for, uh, typesetting and printing and, you know, with lots of, proofreading and, and everything in between. And the end result was what some people call the telephone book uh, issue of American Birds, where it was the yeah. full printed results of every single Christmas bird count that was submitted that season. There was no database. There were subsets that had been, uh, you know, entered by the people at Patuxent Wildlife Research Center and also up at the Laboratory of Ornithology and then also out in, at Colorado State. But those were of specific groups in a specific time and not the whole database. So the one of the most, you know, really the most monumental thing that, that we, that Audubon and the lab did um, was we got a big grant and we actually computerized the entire data set as the core database to start what was then called BirdSource. Um, and then during the course of that computerization, we also went to the online data entry system where mm-hmm. suddenly compilers were actually entering their own data and it was a much, it made for a much more accurate database. Yeah. Um, there was a lot of, many of the compilers weren't exactly what you would want to call computer savvy. <laughs> um, and that was a, a, quite a challenge as the manager inverting. of the whole program. But um but that's that's really that that and then in combination with the fact that ornithologists and scientists have truly embraced the CBC mm-hmm. um, as well as the Breeding Bird Survey as valuable data sets that are able to show us all this really interesting stuff and document a how birds have been shifting over the last fifty and now ninety years. Yeah, um, and so we can document how, what the what the climate's been doing, what the birds have been doing, and then we can take those data and actually model out the future of what may be happening. Yeah, yeah, like chocolate and peanut butter. Right. right. <laughs> um, does your relationship with the data change when you go to a com- computerized model? Because I ask because like there's something really that I really like about like hand collating that sort of data like you really feel like you're you're in it and you're close to it and you can really see those trends and and i I love the computerization of all that data it's fantastic it's it allows you to do so much so many more cool things but like there's a distance almost from it (laughs) yeah i i mean i i know exactly what you're getting to getting at because i mean when i was hand i mean i literally hand edited every single (laughs) form so i felt like i had a real uh, direct connection and, and, and actually, you know, direct 
not review, but I, you know, I was able to see how every single Christmas bird count yeah. went. The weather data yeah. were there, the effort data were there, and also the bird data. Um, and I could see, you know, they, oh, wow, they got a whatever this year, wherever yeah. they are. <laughs> um, I don't really... I don't. I don't automatically see that now. Now that it's yeah. all online, they're they're handling their own data entry, and then I'm managing them doing the compilers doing their data entry, and also the regional editors doing their review. Um, and so I get to hear highlights, and you know, mm-hmm. um, and, but I I don't really feel like I have a as much of a direct connection to any any of the CBCs except the ones that I do myself now, right. which. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 the pros and cons. Obviously, obviously, yeah. you can do so much more cool stuff when it's you know in a computer, and they can find you can use it to to do this sort of do this sort of science. But I don't know, it's kind of personal loss almost. Yeah. I know I know exactly what you're just saying. It's like when I move my uh, life list onto eBird, you know, like it's yeah. <laughs> it's automatic yeah. now. Yeah. <laughs> um, can you can you talk a little bit about how to approach this sort of data? Like ostensibly, it's it's 119 circles that have. You know, many decades of data, but even so, you have like turnover with observers, and maybe changes in skill sets, and intensity of coverage, or weather. Even um, how do you how do you standardize it all? Yeah, that's a good question. And you know, community science data sets, as many pros and advantages that they have, mm-hmm. they do have some disadvantages, and that's what you're alluding to with the biases that kind of come along with yeah. it. Um, the observers might vary in skill, or you know, certain circles they're not they're not surveyed every year. So you have to Mm -hmm. account for the fact that you have those kind of gaps. Um, So we do have to make a lot of kind of decisions upfront with an analysis like this, as well as, you know, some assumptions. And one of them was why we ended up only really looking at the Eastern United States. And that's Mm -hmm. essentially those are 119 circles have been consistently surveyed over the 90 years that we really, we really wanted to look back nearly a century. And so because that was our motivation, we had to identify the circles that would give us the most information and the most power to understand these patterns. And For sure. um, the Eastern United States had those circles that fit the bill and the Western US, while they do have circles, they just haven't been consistently surveyed all the way back in time um, like that. So we had to limit it spatially um, in order to, to answer the questions that we wanted to. And um, you know, other things that we accounted for effort as well, um, we've learned you know, over time with CBC analyses that um, we get more accurate results if we account for our effort. So um, not only this analysis, but previous CBC analyses, um, we have a standard way of um, accounting for the effort that we included in, in the models here. Um, and then also, you know, we had to figure out what species we wanted to look at right. for this analysis. Yeah. You know, the CBC, you can see hundreds of species, but um, we didn't want to make inference on all hundreds of species just because we don't have the power to really understand some of those relationships with just one observation here or there of a, right. of a given species. Um, so we looked at, you know, how the winter ranges of species overlapped with the study area of the eastern United States and made sure we were only including species that had considerable overlap just because, you know, we don't want to be capturing species whose range barely barely touches the eastern right. United States. Um so that was, you know, another preliminary, you know, filtering process we had to go through. And um, also we ended up grouping those 89 species into nine different um, habitat related groups. So we had to make some decisions there about um, which group each of the species belonged in. And luckily we can kind of rely on past precedents for making those groupings. And 
um, understanding how like Partners in Flight has a, a database of grouping species mm-hmm. um, by habitat associations. And so we just yeah. followed those um, those standard approaches as well. So um, a lot of, you know, a lot of different decision making and assumptions to account for um, some of these differences in community science data sets versus professionally collected. But um, you know, the field has is advancing quickly, and, and there's pro- approaches out there to compensate for those kind of things. Yeah, it certainly makes sense to look at sort of wide-ranging species as well, just because, you know, from a conservation perspective, those species are often overlooked. You know, you look at things like uh, birds that we know are sort of having a tough go of it uh, versus birds that are wide-ranging, that people see regularly, those populations might be changing in a way that is not immediately obvious to the birding public, uh, but that you would actually see when you're looking at 90 years worth of data. Um, I, I don't know, the eastern bluebird, house finch, things like that, that you know are, are coming and going in ways that uh, might be related to climate change, might not, it's hard to say. And you know, the power, because we group species, the species can share information within those groupings. And so it's exactly what you're getting at, essentially, the more widespread species that we see more often, they have more information. And so we can learn from the relationships between habitat and climate with those species and and use that to inform the relationships with rarer species um, because we've grouped them together and we can make inference oh, on water cool. birds, for example. So, um, you know, that's that's another powerful aspect of, of what we did too. One thing that that's really um, interesting also is that a lot of, and it gets to what your, your question was, Nate, is that... Um, for the common birds, the common and widespread birds that we do tend to see all the time, it's hard to it's hard to hard to sort of recognize that they are declining. But still, I mean, like grackles are being are about yeah, to be yeah. or, you know listed in Cal in uh, in Canada as a threatened species. Um, and when you look at you know, but you know, you, you go out on a Christmas bird count, you might see all flocks of yeah. hundreds or thousands of grackles, um, starlings, you know, house sparrows, things we you know, you know, not people's favorite birds necessarily. Right. But they're some of the ones that are declining most dramatically um, when we look not only at the CBC but also the Breeding Bird Survey. Um, but one of the really cool things about the Christmas bird count and why we actually um, look at it in, in decadal intervals and not, you know, this year to last year is because of that. Um, there is a consistency in the way each count is run over time. And every count isn't done exactly the same way uh, as the neighboring counts or the ones in a different state. But that individual count is done the same way every year. And it's the same people doing it every year so that you do get a consistency of the, of the effort and, and the methodology on each individual count. And then also when you look at the decadal stuff, basically all the potential weather efforts or e- effects are going to sort of come out in the wash. Yeah, so that's no. that's one of the reasons we, we tend to look at CBC data in, in decadal chunks. Yeah. And, and, you know, you're talking about individual counts and people like so many people have like just a real sense of ownership about their count. Oh, wow. like CBCs are so special in that way. <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> Yeah, like I have one that uh, when I was a when I was a young birder in Missouri, like that we did every single year with my dad and some other group of people. We did the same group, the same route every single year um, because it was just the most effective. With you know minor changes here and there based on who was available on any given year or something. But like you, you really end up loving these patches and loving these counts. 
Yep. It's it's the sense of place mm-hmm. in addition to the, the birds there, but equally important really to the to the success of the of, of the the program and its longevity is the fact that it's the social aspect. Birders oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. we I mean it's not only you get to go to a place and that you love and and you know see the birds that you love and you may not get to see them from, you know wherever your home is, mm-hmm. but you also get to bird with your friends that you may only yeah. see that you know, during the CBC time. And it all sort of, the social aspect of it really is, is what helps the CBC be uh, so successful over time and keeps people doing it um, oh, for sure. in, in the, you know, a uniform way. So it's, it's, it's a unique program, really. Yeah, it's an event. It's a tentpole of the birders year, for sure. You know, simply assuming that birds are going to move northward is probably uh, oversimplification of how climate change affects birds, though we, though we do see that. Um, was there anything that this data sort of suggested that maybe felt counterintuitive? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I think, you know, what you're, what you said is true. We did not see this kind of consistent northward movement or a change in distribution across the nine species groups that we looked at. Um, but we did see that for woodpeckers and forest hawks, for example, um, were increasing in occurrence in the northern edge of the study area and decreasing occurrence on the southern edge. So that was, you know, it was nice to be able to kind of see the differential responses across these species groups and understand, you know, which the how the patterns that we're seeing might differ depending on what species we're looking at. Um, so, and I think, you know, also, we really dug into the, you know, changes over time and the temporal aspects. So mm-hmm. we were able to actually um, look across these species groups and see, you know, is it uh, anthropogenic land use change? So um, related to agriculture or urbanization yeah. that's impacting them, or is it changes in their preferred habitats? So those natural habitats like grasslands and forests. And we could piece that apart and say, you know, the the changes we're seeing in their distributions are more attributed to one of these factors or another. And so I mm-hmm. think that kind of level of detail and understanding, like partitioning that, that change into those different components is um, a unique as- result of what we found too. So. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, you know, I think about forest successional changes and, and how important that is, you know, there's, there's, there's been change historically over the in the eastern United States as well, you know, when the colonial powers came over, they chopped down a lot of the trees and became more agricultural. Then, you know, several decades, many decades later, uh, that became less of an issue. And so the forest started coming back. Like there's, there's a lot, there's a lot going on here that is, it makes it so complicated to, to look at this stuff. Yeah. It's, I mean, and it's also nice to be able to pinpoint those species groups in terms of, you know, which may be more sensitive to land use changes versus climate changes. And so we did find that, you know, consistently across all nine groups, climate is what's limiting kind of those like outer spatial limits of these distributions. And so, um, you know, that makes sense in the winter. It's like their thermoregulatory abilities and um, their thermal tolerances are kind of the limiting factor there. So that was consistent across all 89 species that we looked at, but then it was really in terms of the temporal change and that those shifts um, between each decade that were driven by different factors, whether it was land use or climate change. So that partitioning too of the spatial versus temporal components can only be done when you have a, you know, a big study area and a long um, time period to look at. Yeah. And I think a lot of these changes are ones that are are so subtle that a lot of people don't even realize, you know, I was thinking just the other day about uh, Northern Cardinal, probably one of the most 
common species in the eastern United States, familiar to almost every birder and non-birder. But, you know, it wasn't that long ago, we're talking the middle of the, the 20th century, that this was primarily considered a southern species. It was a southern bird. They didn't really come up north of the Ohio River. They kind of stalled up there. And in the last few decades, my goodness, like they are common all the way up into the southern tier of Canada. And it happened so subtly that people didn't really... And, you know, you don't really see it unless you're looking at that long-term, that long-term stuff. Yeah, the, many of the southern, quote-unquote, former, you know, southern species, yeah. um, you know, it's pretty, people, birders, I, under, I, you know, under, understand and have seen what's happening with cardinals, mockingbirds, titmice, mm-hmm. red-bellied woodpeckers, yep. um, things like that. Underwear. One of the things that blew me away when we first started looking into this, uh, just in terms of the larger data sets, was morning dove. I mean, oh, really? You, well, oh. you think, oh, yeah, morning doves are everywhere all the time. Well, we got a request from a researcher to asking, asking for morning dove data from Christmas bird counts in Quebec. Mm-hmm. And when we pulled the whole data set, we realized that there weren't any CBC data in Quebec for morning dove prior to the 1970s. Wow. And I, I never thought of morning dove as being yeah. one of these species huh. that's moving northward. And it, it does seem to be. But one of the other interesting things about the 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 current study um and is that because we were aggregating the species we weren't looking at individual species i think that gives you sort of a a, a bigger picture of the whole what's likely to be happening or what is happening with climate change as well as land land use change and um when individual species may be moving differently within the same group um, for different reasons. And, and I mean, one example of that is, is the, you know, ravens, common ravens. Mm-hmm. They're, they're actually rapidly, if, when you look at the center of abundance on Christmas bird counts, they're rapidly moving southward. Yeah, I, I can attest to that living in North Carolina. <laughs> right. I mean, there's like five or six pairs of, of ravens now that nest in New York City. Yeah. And the thing, what we did for ravens, we built cell phone towers. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> and we also stopped persecuting them. So they're basically yeah. recolonizing probably oh. what, what was historically their range. So when you look at ravens, they're moving southward. Other corvids could well be moving northward individually. Yeah. So that's that's, that's why we sort of get this when we aggregate the groups, um, what can be a slightly different picture and, and maybe a more important one uh, than just looking at individual species. So how did you make the decisions uh, about as to which bird goes in which group? Yeah, we that took some time, but we did rely on, you know, kind of the past um, precedents for how they've been grouped. And so there's, you know, the habitat, the PIF habitat database um, to associate them with their primary preferred habitat. So, you know, grassland birds, forest birds, water, wetland associated birds was kind of like the first pass at grouping them. And then we further divided those by taxonomy in that we assumed that similar species of similar body sizes would potentially be responding to climate factors um, mm-hmm. in similar ways. You know, passerines that are smaller are going to respond differently to climate than forest hawks that are larger. Um, so we had to separate forest passerines from forest hawks um, in order to account for those those factors. Um, so those were kind of the two general ways that we grouped them, and we further looked at you know dividing them by migratory strategies or. Um, you know, diet and things like that and found that, you know, for the most part in our preliminary analyses, we were getting similar uh, results for the relative impacts of climate change and land use change, even when we further divided those groups into much smaller groupings. And 
um, which is, you know, that makes our results all the more powerful that we're demonstrating these similar results no matter how we group the species. Um, but we ended up keeping them at rather coarser groupings just so that, like I mentioned before, they can have information sharing across species um, within those groups. And we had more power and more observations um, to make those inferences. So hmm. basically, yeah, habitat and taxonomy were the two kind of the two biggies. Factors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think, you know, birds are really special because there is this huge amateur data collection aspect to it. And they also seem to be sort of the perfect taxa for studying climate change because they're both super apparent, you know, they're all over the place and they're also super flexible in terms of how they respond to short and long-term changes. Can you make inferences on other taxa, uh, mammals, reptiles, insects, trees, whatever, based on the, the stuff that you have found with birds? I think, you know, the general concept and the modeling framework that we used could be applied to other taxa, um, assuming that, you know, there's that kind of breadth of data available, um, which, you know, there could be in other taxa, maybe like small mammals um, Mm -hmm. have um, that long-term data collection. So I think the concepts of being able to kind of, you know, divvy up the amount of change that we're seeing into climate versus land use and understanding like which ones are having more relative impact, I think that can definitely be applied outside of the bird world. Um, But, you know, like it all kind of comes back down to data and the quality and the quantity of the data that's available. And, and birds are, you know, like you said, this ideal taxonomic group to answer those questions, just because we've been monitoring them for so long um, and have, you know, a bunch of different programs and data types that we can kind of integrate together and answer these really broad scale questions. Um, Hard, hard to do a Christmas reptile count anyway. It's going to be a good time of year for that. <laughs> um, or a Christmas butterfly count. <laughs> Christmas butterfly count. Not so great. Yeah. I, I do have friends that do spring butterfly counts. Oh, yeah. So, you know, that, there's some of that. Maybe they could do something with that. I think there's some interesting potential uh, stuff uh, happening with butterflies as well. Yeah. Um, I, I think also when you sort of see this, these studies using this data that is largely collected by hobby birders, it makes us feel like a sense of ownership for this work. It's, it's really gratifying to see something many of us think is like a pastime contributing to this important scholarship. That's one of the things I've been, as I've been giving talks to, you know, bird clubs and Audubon chapters and, you know, whatever over the last, especially over the last 10 to 15 years, when I, when I first started doing, being in charge of the CBC, the, the, the real, the, the big hurdle was to get the scientific community to accept CBC and citizen community science data sets, whatever you want to call them. Um, that's happened, you know, you know, extremely successfully. What I've come to realize as I'm talking to the, the people doing the counts is that they, they, I mean, they're just remembering the social aspect and the birding aspect. They don't mm-hmm. really, in fact, many of them just don't believe that what they're doing is an important contribution to science and to our understanding of what's happening to the birds that we love. And it truly is very important. Every single person and every single bird you see or don't see on a CBC, it helps us understand in the long term what's happening with with the birds across, especially North America or the U.S. and Canada. That's sort of the big thing. One of the things I realize right now is that it's really important to impress upon the people doing CBCs that it really is a meaningful thing. Yeah, it's a fun day and a wonderful day to get out and see your friends and your birds in your favorite place, but it's also truly important in terms of contributing data to this long-term data set that helps us see what's happening. 
Yeah. I mean, people do CBCs for all sorts of reasons. You know, maybe they do it because of the community aspect. Maybe they do it because it's an opportunity to get in some wildlife refuge spaces that they wouldn't necessarily be able to. Uh, maybe they enjoy finding vagrants. I don't know. But like it, 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 all those reasons, actually, probably every, every one of them has a little bit of an aspect to it. Um, that's certainly why I do CBCs and breeding bird surveys as well. Um, but, you know, you really appreciate that your your work is being taken as seriously as, as it is. Yeah. And that's a, a really neat thing. One of the things that's really I find most exciting about this current study is that in in the past, almost all the analyses that we've done or that have been done, because it's not just Audubon that analyzes the CBC data set, is looking at the years when we also have the breeding bird survey to compare to it. Um, and the BBS and, and the CBC for for the species that are sampled in both surveys actually have, there's a really good agreement in terms of trend data and what's happening you know, cool. between all these species. And then the cool thing, of course, is the BB the BBS gets all the stuff that goes to South America, you know, yeah. the warblers and vireos and tanagers and that kind of stuff. But the CBC gets a lot of things that are totally missed by the breeding bird survey For sure. because they're they're breeding in the oh, boreal and up in the, in the tundra. Birds, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But so we get you know we get American tree sparrows and white throats. And, you know, mm-hmm. the, even white breast did not hatch and things like that. Um, but what we, this, this is really cool because it, it's just looking at the CBC data. So it actually extends it back to that other half of the data set that we ha- we're just starting to, to, to look into right now. And it's really exciting. Mm-hmm. Sarah Saunders is an ecologist for National Audubon. Jeff LeBaron is the director of the Christmas Bird Counts. They're both authors on a paper unraveling a century of global change impacts on winter bird distributions in the eastern United States. The link to that paper and an article about it from Audubon will be in the show notes, so check that out. Um, congratulations on the publication of the study, and, and thanks so much for talking to me today. Thanks for having us, Nate. Thanks very much for having us, Nate. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support it by supporting the ABA with your membership. There are many benefits like our magazines, discounts to partners, opportunities to travel with us, and you can get information about all that at aba.org join. Special shout outs this week to Richard Lund and the Lunds of Downers Grove, Illinois, Kyle Burton and the Burton family of Inglewood, Colorado, Stephen Self of Austin, Texas, Stephen Stifler of Hurdle Mills, North Carolina, Stephen Jarvis of Fayetteville, Arkansas, the rare Triple Stephen Week, and Thomas Bruzon of Mount Prospect, Illinois. All of them recently joined the ABA and noted the podcast as their reason for doing so. Thank you so much. Welcome to the ABA. Technical production this week is by Greg Addington, who was disappointed to find that Megan Thee Stallion's single, Cocky AF, was not, in fact, about American Woodcock or Himalayan Snowcock. Additional help also comes from David Hartley and Greg Neese, who are so very jealous of birders in South Texas and Florida for all of their groove and smooth build. Ani, 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 You can find us online at ABA.org and on social media most everywhere as American Birding Association, but on Twitter as ABA. I think it's abundantly clear given the excitement around the 2022 ABA Bird of the Year, that all of us here are big owl freaks. Questions, comments can come to podcast.ava.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. Till next week. <laughs>